Hi, this is Melanie from Dear Debt. You are listening to Eric Rosenberg, who totally rocks. And you are about to listen to the Personal Profitability Podcast. You're listening to the Personal Profitability Podcast, where you'll learn how to earn income, live better, and put your money to work for you. Here's your guide on your path to personal profitability, Eric Rosenberg. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to the Personal Profitability Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Rosenberg. And today we're doing something a little different. We're joined by a guest we've had once before, but he's not going to be the guest. I'm going to be the guest. So today with me is um, is one of my very good friends, probably my my best blogger buddy, if you want to call him that, Jeff Fruworth. Give a shout out. Say hello. Hi, everybody. Good to be back. So uh, Jeff, you might remember from, I think it was our very first interview of uh, of the podcast. So that was episode number three, now now about three, four months in. So it's, it's exciting. We're still going and it's fun to have Jeff back. So as always for our interviews, we have our beer of the day. What are you drinking as you, uh, as you interview me, Jeff? Well, since it's eight minutes afternoon as we're recording this, I went a little lighter and grabbed a Utica Club Pilsner Lager. Ooh, that's a good one. I like you. That's a good brewery. I like their stuff. They're, they're consistent. They're good. They're flavorful. Anyway, so I'm about to open my beer. I've never opened a beer on the air like this before, I think. So so let's see how it goes. Hopefully, I won't explode beer on the microphone because the microphone costs way more than the beer. <laughs> I know now are you all thirsty out there in podcast land? Remember, if you're um, we, we love I always say Personal finance should be fun. So so please do join me in a beer if you are able. Obviously, if you are in the car or at work and work frowns upon those things, do not have a beer. But if you're able to, you can join us. I'm actually having a, a really cheap beer that's not that great today. It's a Simple Times Pilsner. You can only get them at Trader Joe's, but they're better than a PBR and cost about the same as a PBR. And it's all right. Refreshing on a hot day. I thought I'd give it a try. Definitely not my favorite beer ever, but um, for the cost, it's pretty good. So, so cheers, Jeff. Clinky, clinky. Clink, clink. <laughs> All right. So as I briefly mentioned, everybody, what we're doing today, Jeff is going to turn the microphone around and interview me and ask me some questions about my own journey and everything I've done with my personal finances, with my businesses, all that good stuff. So from this point forward, the, um, the whole the whole interview, the whole podcast is in Jeff's hands. I'm hoping it's in good hands. This is a total experiment for me, and um, but I trust Jeff. He's a great guy. So, Jeff, it is all yours. All right. Thanks a lot, Eric. So, I have a few questions prepared for you today just so all of your podcast listeners can get to know a little bit about you better if they're, uh, if they're not frequent readers of the blog and if they haven't been reading your blog for the six or so years that you've been writing, I think. Okay. So, uh, Eric, for those of you that uh, haven't been following along in your blogging journey from the very beginning, can you talk a bit about how you started Narrowbridge Finance and uh, then the transition from that to personal profitability? Sure. So, 
I first started in, um, it was actually just after college. I got my first job ever out of school was in a bank. It was just a local regional bank in the Denver area. And, and I, while I was working there, I learned all this great stuff. They gave us this huge training course on all things bank related. And I was on the management trainee program. So they, you know, they put quite a lot of work into teaching us everything we'd know to be a, a branch manager. And I was acting as the branch manager in my time there. And I learned you know, everything about how checking accounts work and savings accounts and CDs and retirement accounts and IRAs and the tax implications of all of these. And I was the person who approved mortgage loans and credit, new credit cards and new line of credit that came through our branch. And you know all, all the things that relate to underwriting the loans and the credit scores and the credit reports. So every piece of any personal relationship with a bank. I wasn't doing as much business stuff at that point. I was really focused on individuals. I got trained and, and learned how to do all of it. And when I was getting, when I left the bank, I left, um, I was there about six months. It wasn't really the right fit for me in my career for what I wanted to do. But I really enjoyed learning everything I learned and decided to start a blog about it. I'd already actually had my first blog about a year or two before I'd started a blog about Israel and the Middle East. And I really enjoyed blogging and thought this would be an opportunity to do something a little more professional and be really helpful to people rather than just you know, spew out my, my political opinions on a, on a far-reaching region of the world. So that's how I started. I uh, just wanted to share everything I had learned while working in the bank with readers. I'd also just finished my own um, undergraduate finance degree. So I was pretty academically educated in personal finance and I managed to get out of undergrad with without any debt. I had spent, I actually had a full ride scholarship that I earned through working at a Boy Scout camp and I had to spend out of pocket, I think it was less than a thousand dollars, about six, seven hundred dollars on my last month's rent when I uh, ran out of scholarship money. But yeah, that scholarship covered room, board, tuition, fees, everything in, in college. And um, I got out of school debt free and thought this is a, an increasingly rare thing that people get out of school debt free. And I wanted to share that story and, and help people with everything I learned at the bank. So that's how I got started. The, the move to personal profitability actually just came, um, the idea came last summer, so mid-2014. It was kind of a funny aha moment. I was in the shower at my old, uh, my old rental you know, the best ideas come to you in the shower often for a lot of people. So I was sitting in the shower thinking about the blog and what it's about. I was really having a um, kind of an existential uh, period thinking about the blog and everything. I just gone to the World Domination Summit, which is a big um, kind of entrepreneurship travel do your thing love fest that, that's run here in Oregon in Portland. And I was you know, all gung-ho about everything. I really wanted to rejuvenate things and be the best online presence I could be. And I thought what the core of that is a big question. What's at the, that time it was called narrow bridge finance and I'd been doing it for about five years. And I thought, what's narrow bridge finance really about? What do I want to help people do? I, I was getting kind of, kind of wandering on the direction of everything. And, and my posts at the time, if you look, were, were kind of all over the map as well. I mean, I think they were all good and helpful, but they weren't super focused on one direction. And when I was standing in the shower, I had that aha moment. I was like, oh, I, I know what it's about. And the words personal profitability popped into my head. 
And I hurried up and rinsed off and dried out and dried off and ran downstairs. And my wife was standing in the kitchen. I said to my wife, I just figured out what person, what narrow bridge finance is all about personal profitability. And, uh, that, that's the direction I went with it. And I, uh, rebranded, I relaunched the blog with a new name, personalprofitability.com instead of narrowbridge.net. So I, I got my own real .com like a grown up. <laughs> um, and I, uh, you know, put the new design, the new homepage. I launched this podcast. I refocused the blog posts on four different silos, four different main categories about you know, growing your wealth, paying off your debt, um, just things like things like that. And um, that that's that's how I got here today. Very cool. It seems like it uh, it took you a little while to kind of get focused, but you finally made it in the end. Yeah, it only it only took five years to figure out what I was writing about. <laughs> right. It uh, some sometimes it's a little bit tougher than you'd think. Okay, so Eric, you talked a bit about being able to get through undergrad debt free, yet there was still a um, quite a few posts on your site about paying off student loan debt. Can you talk about how that came to be? Sure. So uh, about a year after I graduated from undergrad, I I had that time working in the bank. Actually, after that. I got a waiter job. I was a server for about three months. And um, actually, that was actually a wonderful experience. I've written a little bit about that as well. But then I got my next real job, which turned out to be the start of my my real career. Um, I got a job at a major telecom company in the finance and accounting side. And when I was looking for that job at the same time, I started applying for grad schools because I knew in the long run, I wanted to get an MBA. It has a lot of pretty big career benefits. I knew in the short term, it wasn't probably going to do much for me. But where it would really help would be, you know, 10 years down the road, if I was up for a promotion, or a job at the same time as someone else, that would be the thing that would really set me apart. So, you know, at the financial analyst, senior analyst level, maybe even manager level, there's not a huge benefit to an MBA. But from the next step from there, I knew that there would be a benefit. So, I thought, it's worth it. It's worth the cost and the effort. And I decided to go for it. And I did my MBA at the University of Denver, which is a private school in in Denver. And um, I worked full time while going to school full time to help pay for it. But it was still an estimated full attendance cost of $90,000, which includes room and board and whatnot. So, I was gonna have to pay that anyway. But you know, $90,000 is no, uh, no chunk of change. And the tuition was I think sixty-seven thousand dollars for the for the whole program. So you know that was a lot of money, plus very expensive business school books. And um, you know, yeah, I, I was going to work, and that helped pay for a big part of it. I ended up with about forty thousand dollars in student loans that I had to take out to help pay for it. So it was not. <laughs> I didn't get I get out free and clear like I did from undergrad. That's uh, that's a lot of money for that fancy pants MBA degree. I actually have it. I'm looking at the the framed certificate now. It's funny you think about it. When you go to high school, you you're really working from when you're five years old till you're 18 for a half a sheet of paper that says you graduated and you can get a job that's a little better than everyone else's job. Then you go to college for four years or or five years for some people, maybe longer, to get a full size sheet of paper that says you can get an even better job. 
And then I spent $90,000 for a slightly enlarged sheet of paper that says I can get a better job than that. <laughs> so it's uh, it's funny to think about what the piece of paper you get when you uh, graduate your diploma. But yeah, it was um it was a huge investment, but I think it did pay off. I actually my job after that first telecom job I mentioned uh got about it was a, a couple months after I graduated, 5 6 months after I graduated, somebody who worked at another big telecom company from my MBA program sent me a note on LinkedIn and said Hey, we have an opening on my team and we're looking for someone with finance and telecom experience. And I came to mind for him and that was my next job. And it gave me, it was, I think about a five or $6,000 raise. So not huge, but if you think about just that direct job I got because of having gone to the MBA program, which there was no way I would have had that without if over your career, you know, five, $6,000 a year. You never lose that. Anytime you move, you, your raises usually go with you unless you really take a big change in career path. So over, I don't know how I could do the math and figure out how, how long it would take for that $5,000 to add up to 90000 But um, you know, that- Eight years. Eight years? 18. 18. Okay. So when I would be, I don't know, about 10 more years, <laughs> I, will, uh, I will have paid for it with just that move. But also because of the MBA- I got another raise. Um, my next job I got, the one that moved me to Portland, uh, came with about a 40% raise. And I don't think there's any way I would have gotten that without the MBA. And you know, that's, that's close to my salary now. And I, I don't want to uh, disclose what I make at my day job. I, I do disclose everything I make online totally openly, but I don't ever totally disclose my day job income. But I'll say that that 40% raise, um, it paid for the MBA in a lot less than 18 years or will have paid for it in a lot less than 18 years. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting. So you said you, uh, you moved to Portland after, uh, after leaving your second telecom job. Mm-hmm. What, uh, can you talk about that a bit? I mean, you were, you were pretty well established in Denver. I know that you went to high school there and you had lived there for quite a while. You went to a university in the area and then you also did your MBA at the university of Denver. So you seemed to, uh, you were pretty well rooted in Denver, so I'm I'm sure that picking up and moving to Portland would have been a relatively uh, difficult proposition, or it had a lot of moving parts at least. Yeah, so it was that was a really big move, and one of the bigger decisions I, I think I ever probably made in my life was that one. Uh, we moved to Denver when I was five years old. I actually moved on my fifth birthday from Indianapolis. That's where we lived before, and it was because my dad got a new job offer at a company that ended up getting bought by Sam's Club. He was a uh, you know, high, higher up person in the company, so it was a good opportunity for the family and a good move. And I started kindergarten in Denver, and my sister was born in Denver, my little sister. So we were definitely a, a longtime Denver family. We'd been there, I don't know, 20, I'm trying to think how old, my, how old I was when I left. Uh, probably about 20, 25 years, so somewhere in that time frame, 24 years maybe in Denver. And uh, it, it was a big part of my identity. I'm, I'm still Denver Eric on Twitter. So I'm, I'm from Denver. I've thought about changing it, but haven't yet. So it was, um, it was definitely a big thing to pick up and move. I had friends, you know, multi, you know, over a decade, I'd had friendships. Um, some friends from when I was in kindergarten that, that I still keep in touch with. So people I'd known 20 years are, um, are all still in Denver. But I thought, I'd always had kind of an itch to try something else. Most of my itches were to move internationally. I'd, I'd looked very seriously at moving to Israel at one point. 
Um, I still play with the idea of moving to London at some point. <laughs> so, so I'm, I can't say I'll never still live internationally. It's on my life list to spend six months in Europe. So at some point I will do that. That's on, if it's on my list, I'll do it. But I, um, I originally, before I decided to move to Portland, I was thinking about moving to New York City. A big part of that was I, uh, I dated most of the Jewish girls in Denver that I thought I was going to date ever. And for me, marrying a Jewish girl was a, was an important thing. I wasn't going to marry anyone else. I'm, I'm a pretty religious guy. And I had run out of Jewish girls in Denver that seemed to be, uh, the type that I would be interested in dating or would be interested in dating me, one of the two. And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to move to New York because there's plenty of Jewish girls there. And with a finance degree, no problem finding a job. But then I did find my nice Jewish girl in Denver, who's now my wife, and she was definitely not a New York City type. So, uh, New York City became, you know, it, it was not a place we were going to move at that point. And we talked a lot about where we might want to move. So, I was really having this itch. I felt like I had to go somewhere. And I hadn't picked, well, I loved Denver and spent a lot of time there. I didn't pick Denver. It was picked for me by my family. And I'd never really picked where I was going to live outside of Colorado. I moved to Boulder for uh, for college and, and a couple of times in Denver that I'd picked, but I never picked somewhere that I wanted to live just because I wanted to live there. And my wife, then fiance, and I checked out Seattle. We checked out Portland. We talked about San Diego and Portland was the one that we, we decided was the winner. And we just picked, I found a job here. I applied online to uh, probably 50 jobs. It was a lot of jobs. I was once I made up my mind that I was going and we we both agreed we were going to go, uh, I applied for just tons and tons of jobs. And one of them I applied for, the recruiter for that job emailed me back and said, well, this job isn't going to work for you, but we have another that might be a great fit. And we had a couple of phone calls and then I had a couple of phone interviews and a Skype interview. And uh, three weeks later, I was on the way to Portland. Okay, Eric, you, you've got a job and moved to Portland. I was under the impression that pretty much nobody under the age of 35 in Portland even had a job. <laughs> That's nice that you got one beforehand. Um, you also do a little freelance work on the side. Can you, can you tell me how you got started and maybe give a few tips for somebody who's looking to start freelancing and earning a little side income to pay down their debt or or save for a move or just start building their own business so they can quit their job and work for themselves? Sure. So I started freelancing kind of accidentally, but it was all related to what was then Narrowbridge Finance. I'd, I always insisted on doing all of my own web design work, even if it was stressful and frustrating because at that point, it saved me a lot of money. I wasn't making a lot of money on the blog. So I wanted to make sure the money I was making, I got to keep. I didn't want to be losing money on my online enterprises. So I just learned how to do it all myself. I became very good with WordPress and online hosting and all these other things. And I started helping out friends when they wanted to start blogs. And some of my other finance blogging friends asked for help moving blogs from one host to another, going from Blogger to WordPress. There's all sorts of uh, maintenance things that go into blogging behind the scenes that I done, did so many times, it wasn't that big of a deal for me to do it. But for people who'd never done it before, it was pretty big. 
So I started helping friends you know, for free initially and then figured out hey, maybe I'll charge a little bit for this and a little bit you know, grew and grew and I kept raising my rates and uh, that that's how I became a an online web WordPress consultant. I, I do uh, a, quite a few designs. I just finished one actually last night for studentomics.com for my friend Martin. I'm always working on new designs and, and helping people out. And that has become a pretty good income source. You know, for really close friends, I, I give a buddy discount. But for, for most people, I charge a, a decent rate for you know, all the work I put in. It's not easy. It's not <laughs> zero hours. You know, I'm not just taking a template and clicking deploy. There's, there's a lot of work and thought and design that goes into it. And that is a valued skill. And I looked at what other freelancers were charging for that type of skill. And I was way under the market initially. And I raised my rates up to be more competitive with what other people are doing. So it's worth my time to invest all that time into someone's site design. And in parallel to that, also because of the blog, I became, I'd like to think, a much better writer. I wouldn't say I'm the best writer by any means, but I've improved a lot. If you go way back into my oldest posts, they're not all that great. And my newer posts, I'd like to think are pretty good. And they're always getting better. I think we can always improve in anything we do. But the online writing also led to a freelance direction. I started writing on some other sites for you know small fee. It, it began pretty low and, and that fee has grown over time. It started, I think my first freelance posts I was doing were about $25 a post, which for a still for a, for a brand new freelancer isn't a bad rate. It's not the best rate, but it's uh it's not it's not bad for getting started out. And I grew my rate from there um, quite a bit. And now I, I I can't say what all my top rates are, but I have done posts for um, for some clients in the, in the three hundred dollar range. I've I typically do more in the hundred to two hundred dollar range. Some over two hundred, but mostly in the one hundred to two hundred dollar range. And that number is is continuing to rise as my skills are more refined and my my expert status is more recognized and in demand. Very cool. So for someone who would, uh, who would want to get started as a, as a freelancer, what would you suggest? I mean, you kind of have two separate freelancing gigs going on. You do the uh, WordPress technical help and design and everything related to that. And you also do blog post writing and, and longer feature style article writing which one would you recommend uh, someone focusing on if they wanted to get started? Well, I would, I would look at what you're good at and what you already enjoy. If you like code and the challenge of, you know, looking at PHP and CSS and HTML and, and putting the puzzle together and figuring out how to overcome sometimes very frustrating challenges, uh, web design can be very lucrative. There are people who charge. You know, 10 times what I do. And they probably put more time, but not 10 times as much as I put in for each site. So that can be very lucrative. Uh, there's always people looking for websites. You know, any Every business now, no matter what, should have an online presence. It doesn't matter if you're a restaurant or a plumber or a multinational corporation. You, know, you should always have some sort of online presence that's your own website that you control. And that means there's a lot of companies out there who need your services. But you have to be willing to you know, pitch yourself and market yourself. And that's true with any freelance job. You can't assume people will just come to you. But sometimes they do, which is always nice. I've had people just come to me 
But generally, you have to you get out there and hustle and apply and look for the jobs and look for the gigs and network a lot. And for website design, networking is huge and you know, getting your name out there and putting yourself out there. So you know, if you're more technically inclined, that's a great way to go. If you are less technical, obviously, that's not something that will appeal to you and writing might appeal to you a lot more. But there's there's a lot of other different types of freelance gigs outside of those two as well. You know, I have uh, my sister-in-law is building a growing graphic design business. And that is something that I have very little skills and knowledge in. I can do just enough to help people or uh, put some of the images together on the websites that I build. But whenever I need logos or anything, I actually point even my own clients to her because I know she'll do a much better job than I could ever do on a graphic design. She's creative and clever and fun. So, um, you know, she's building that business. That's something that I can't do. So really find what you're good at and what you enjoy. That is something somebody would be willing to pay money for. And you can look um, one place to look for ideas. Just go to Fiverr, Fiverr.com and see what people are paying five bucks for. And now there's add-on gigs. You can make way more than $5 from Fiverr. But that is a place to see what people are doing online for money. You can see all the different categories of gigs. You can also look at um, formerly Odesk. That's where I found some of the freelancers I've hired who are more technical developers who can create custom plugins, things like that. And look, it's it's now called Upwork.com instead of Odesk. So that's it's a weird one to say to adjust from Odesk to Upwork. But, um, Upwork is another place. Look, you can list your skills. You can see what categories people are hiring for and um, take some qualification tests even to show that you are well qualified and deserving of being hired. So you can start on, on one of those places and just see what other people are doing. Maybe even sign up yourself and list your own skills and, and start building up a client base. Okay. Those sound like some uh, great tips for anyone. And as usual, the most important part about any tip that you get um, online or off is to actually take action on the advice. Yes. So, <laughs> I've seen so many people just talk about what they're going to do and keep trying to learn more and more and more about being the best at it. But unless you just start, you'll never make a dollar. You, you can't sell something that's not for sale. So even if you're not totally ready yet, just dive in and give it a shot and you can learn along the way. So there've definitely been WordPress issues and even some writing things that have come up that I haven't known how to do and I've had to learn and they, they make me better and more valuable, but I've always been able to figure it out. All right. So let's, uh, let's move on to the, uh, the last question I had prepared. I, I noticed on your site and on your podcast, you talk about travel quite a bit. You seem to uh, to go quite a few places. I mean, I've you know, you and I have have been like internet friends since 2009 or 2010, and uh, you've gone to Spain since I've known you. You just got back from there. You've gone to Canada. You've gone to California multiple times. You've gone to Israel, I believe, um, New York City, and these. You're just talking about the last couple of months there. <laughs> So can you uh, can you tell everybody how much all that costs for you and and how you can save money while doing all that? Sure. So I have so Jeff alluded. I talk about travel hacking a lot. It's all of these trips would not be possible if I had to pay full price. You know, plane tickets, if you pay list price, can be a lot of money. You know, thousands of dollars for for big international trips. 
hotels also can, you know, $100 a night is, um, is a reasonable hotel rate for a lot of hotels, but nice hotels can cost, you know, hundreds and hundreds a night, especially if you're on a multi-week trip that can add up to thousands of dollars very quickly. So I, I do what is commonly called as travel hacking. That is trying to take advantage, not, not illegally or breaking the rules, but within the frameworks of how the system works, try to earn and build up a huge point and mile balance as cheaply as possible to use those for then free and discounted travel around the world. And as Jeff mentioned, um, since I've started travel hacking, my trips, my biggest international trips have been, I think, two trips to Israel. One, um, one solo, actually it was with my mom, but I, I paid for my own way. And one with my wife, who, who then my, my girlfriend, who uh, we went to my cousin's wedding in Tel Aviv and all around Israel. One trip, my first big travel hack, I went with a friend to London, Paris, and Amsterdam. And just the last, I think it was about three weeks ago, I got back from two weeks in Spain, Gibraltar, and Portugal. And actually just this morning, I booked a flight to Santa Barbara and another one to LA. We have two trips to California coming up. Um, one of them was nearly free. The other one for two of us from Portland to LA round trip was 17,000 miles and $20 out of pocket. And those 17,000 miles cost me almost nothing. So that was a what $20-$25 trip to California for our flights. So doing this, you know, as Jeff said, it it, it takes a lot a little bit of work and, and actually a lot of work and a lot of time. So I'll give you a, a quick high level of how I got started with travel hacking so you can uh, you can keep learning. And I have a post on this that I'll put in the show notes so you can see my it's actually almost more of an ebook than a post. It's about eight to ten thousand words. So it's pretty big and detailed. But the the basic idea of how I travel hack is you look for the best sign up bonus credit card offers available today that will work with the airlines and travel habits that you have. So, you know, some, if you live in, let's say Denver, having a lot of United miles will be really great because United has a huge hub there, but having a ton of American Airlines miles, not as useful because you have to go through Dallas, let's say to go most places or, um, or Phoenix. And so there's, there's big gateway hub cities that airlines have. In Denver, it was really easy because we had United and Southwest and Frontier, all with major hubs and operations in Denver. Living in Portland, we have a, quite a bit more limited um, hub. We have Alaska Airlines here, uh, which is a little tougher to get miles for. There's still ways to do it. But you have to really think about what airlines you use and what places you want to travel or travel regularly. And if you travel to whatever city in America to go back home and visit family, you'll want to be able to get there easily. If you like crossing the pond and going to Europe, you'll want to get there easily. So you have to think about that. But the big, there's a few big travel rewards cards. Some come from Chase, some come from Barclay cards, some come from Citibank. Um, they're, they're the biggest for the travel hacking cards. So there's others out there. And when you sign up, you get these big, Sign up bonuses, you know, 50,000 miles. My best was 100,000 American miles for a card. And some of these cards do have annual fees. You have to plan out when you want to close the cards, if you want to keep them open year to year, which many of them I do because the value I get from the miles and the free travel I calculated is 
worth more than the annual fee. But it's not always the case. So you have to plan that out. But you also, when you sign up for these cards, have to hit a minimum spend level within a certain number of months to get the big bonus. So um, one example, the Chase Sapphire Preferred, I think last I saw was you have to spend $3,000 within three months to get a 40,000 point bonus. And that, that's always changing. So um, by the time you hear this, it might be outdated. But so those, but those types of deals are very common. But sometimes if you sign up for, I often will sign up for multiple cards in the same day for credit reporting reasons, which I'll get into more detail about in, the, in those blog posts. But when you sign up for you know, three or four cards in a day that have a two to $5,000 minimum spend, one of them I signed up for, I think had a $15,000 spend I had to get for the 100,000 miles. All of a sudden you have to spend $20,000 on your credit cards in you know three four months, which is um, you know, a lot more money than most of us earn, let alone could spend on credit cards. So there's these techniques used called manufactured spending, where you go buy gift cards and reloadable bank cards and cash cards with your credit card. So when you swipe the card, it looks like a credit card purchase. You know, spent five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, but really out of pocket, you only spent five dollars, and you can cash out those gift cards and cash reloadable cards to pay off your credit card bill. So it's kind of a cycle and you're not really spending that money. So that's kind of the basics of how it works. There's also the other side of how you use it. You know, booking reward travel is not as easy because you know with cash, you just click buy and it's done. With award flights, you have to find the best seats and you don't want to pay. There's, there's discounted seats and double price seats depending on what your airline is. They're called you know, super saver awards or something like that. And you don't want to you know, get half the value per mile that you could get. So there's a lot of moving parts to it, but it's totally doable. Totally uh, anyone can do it if you have good a good credit score. That's a big part of it. And you manage your credit well. If you spend uncontrollably when you have credit cards, this is not for you. But if you have good credit card habits and you think ahead and are willing to plan and do work, you can really go anywhere in the world without spending all that much money. I, I have enough miles and points right now that I could take myself to Europe and back, not including my wife, uh, I think five or six times. So with my wife, I think that oh, that'd be two or three round trips to Europe or you know, it takes more points to go to Asia sometimes or Australia, but we could go anywhere in the world right now for free with our miles or very close to it. And um, at least once or twice. And that's for the two of us. So there's, there's a lot of great value to that. When I just went on my trip to Spain, we used miles to get there. And, you know, the routing is not always super easy. When, when you use miles, we had to have a couple stops both ways, but they were, uh, they weren't, you know, they weren't too bad. And, we also got, uh, we stayed in hostels for part of our trip in Spain to save some money. And we stayed in a five-star Sheridan in downtown Lisbon uh, using a combination of cash and points. There's different ways you can use your points at hotels. Some are fully points, some are fully cash, or you can do a combination of cash and points. And that usually gives you a better point value than if you just did all points. So we stayed in a room that you know, the little thing on the back of the door said, this room normally costs 450 euros a night. We got it for 75 euros a night. So, uh, you know, there, there's lots of great tricks you can do and use, and it will save you tons of money on travel. And I think 
I really recommend anyone does it is you're traveling the world. The world's a big place. And if you've never been outside of your comfort zone, you can learn a lot about people and yourself and the whole world by going to see it. And, um, you know, it's, it's all out there waiting for you. That's, uh, that's a lot of information. And for those of you who, uh, who might be a little overwhelmed, I highly recommend you check out the, uh, Ultimate Beginner's Guide to Travel Hacking, I believe Eric called it, on the yeah. site. And that'll give you a few good places to get started. And uh, one last question, Eric, before I keep you too long. What's uh, what's next for you and your wife and uh, I guess your family now um, <laughs> pers- and uh, personal profitability and your freelance business? Sure. So um, as Jeff slyly alluded to something that I've shared with uh, with my email subscribers. This will be the first time I'm seeing it on the podcast. I am expecting my first child with my wife. Obviously, it's not. it takes two to make a baby. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're expecting our first child. We don't know the gender yet. We, we just found out a couple months ago and we are so excited to be to be new parents. This is the right time and the right step for us and we're absolutely thrilled. So that is a you know, that's a big change. And when, when I've been working my full-time job and doing all my freelance stuff and my own blogs on the side, that takes, it's a lot of hours. It takes a lot of time to do all of this. And I have to now think about prioritizing my time because obviously I don't want to be the workaholic dad that doesn't spend time with my kids, especially when they're little and growing up. So I have been working with, I have brought on a new VA, a new virtual assistant who's helping take off some of the load of repetitive tasks and things that I don't like doing as much for the blog. So she's doing some of the formatting and the scheduling of my blog posts, something that I've always done for myself. I have on and off had freelance writers writing on the site to help out as well. And they're continuing on. I have one freelance writer right now and with him and the VA together, those are posts I hardly have to do a thing with, which is really nice. I just give them a one-time edit myself. I also actually have a VA that helps edit these these podcast episodes. So um, you won't hear it when you're listening, but Jeff and I have had some technical issues with uh, with our connection. And the VA that I have will edit all of those out and, and make it a nice, good uh, experience for you. And that's time that I'm now saving for spending with my my family and preparing to spend with my family. So next big steps, I'm, I'm keeping going with all the things that I'm doing and enjoying. I have been scaling back a little bit on my web design work because that's pretty time intensive for the ROI that I get out of it. And I'm refocusing some of my efforts on my best clients for both web design and freelance writing. And I'm starting a new venture also on the side with uh, with this time I found a partner and you can go see the site. If you're looking at it as this is being recorded, you're just going to get a landing page with an email form, but the website behind it will be opening up in the coming weeks. It's called money Mola, which is at M O N E Y M O L A.com. And the idea is it's a site to help people who lend money to family and friends better manage that. So it'll let you use auto pay and the same type of loan amortization tools that you get when you get a loan from a bank, except uh, you don't have to go through a bank. So if you're loaning you know, $500 to a cousin or you know, if you're the rich uncle who people come to for money, you can track all these loans now, um, whether, whether it's to family or friend, you can manage all that together. And um, 
you know, we'll see how that goes. We're not live yet, but we're going to be starting at the end of June. Hopefully we'll start our alpha testing. So I'll be calling up friends like Jeff to, to test it out, see how it works. Um, in July, we'll start adding the auto pay and ACH features so people can you know, pay each other through our website and hopefully in August or September timeframe before FinCon comes up and we're all together um, with, with my finance blogger friends, we want to have the whole site ready to go and, and up and live. So if we're on schedule um, within a couple months, I'll also be a um, tech web entrepreneur. That's uh, that's quite a bit of things you got on your plate, Eric. Well, uh, yeah, keep busy. And then I still find time to have a beer and, and go ride my bike from time to time. So cheers. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to uh, lead your podcast and sitting down with me to help your readers get to know a little bit more about you. Yeah. So thank you. Well, everyone knows how to find me. You know, I'm, I'm at personalprofitability.com or hopefully you are subscribed to the podcast. At um, You can find it on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have a moment to leave a, leave a rating, hopefully you'll leave a good one. I'd really appreciate it. It helps me a lot. Um, if you want to know more about Jeff, you can find him at sustainablelifeblog.com. He's also on, on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else. Is there anything else you want people to know how to find you, Jeff? Uh, no, those are those are the best places to find me online. Great. So yeah, head to sustainablelifeblog.com and you can find Jeff. He's doing lots of projects too. He, we talked, as I mentioned, I think it was episode three. So you can go back and listen to my interview of Jeff with what he's doing. He's doing some SEO work, which is really great, helping out other bloggers and website owners to improve their websites. He has his own blog and and his own baby who he just had. How old, how old's your daughter now? A year and a half? Year? Fifteen months. Fifteen months? Yes. And I've been lucky enough to meet his daughter. She's totally adorable. So uh, I'll be joining Jeff in the path to fatherhood. And he, you know, he he's a great guy, lives in Wyoming, does, does some very cool stuff. So um, please do give him a visit and... Um, check out the show notes at, this will be at uh, personalprofitability.com. You can click on the little podcast logo on the homepage there at the bottom, and that will take you to a list of all the podcast episodes, or you can check it out on iTunes. So thank you everybody so much for listening. It really means a lot that you took the time to hang out with us today. And um, I, I hope you find it helpful and useful. If you have any questions, you can you know, always shoot me an email, eric at personalprofitability.com. And until next time, my friends, stay profitable. Thanks for listening to the Personal Profitability Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating on iTunes or share it with a friend.